How was lunch, everybody? Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Country Kitchen Catering. Am I, am I on? Can you guys hear me? Yeah? Okay. Okay, so before we get going with the Q&A, I would just like to give everybody um, uh, the, the heads up about what to expect next week if you come back to SACPA. Um, next week we have um, a topic called Judging Sexual Assault, Lessons from the Robin Camp Debacle, and that will be Dr. Caroline Hodes that will be presenting. So please, please come back for that one. Uh, I would also like to let you know that um, upcoming sessions are listed on the SACPA website, which is sacpa.ca. And I would also, I didn't even know this, I would also like to let you know that the sessions can be heard in audio um, as a podcast on the SACPA website. So you can listen to it when you're out for a jog, I guess. Um, there is a suggestion box in the lobby if you have ideas or comments on this session or any others or any future perspective sessions. Um, I think with that, I'll just talk about how we're, we're about to do this. A lot of you have been here before. The microphone is right over here if you'd like to come up um, to ask your question. Um, I would like to say, let's see here. If you don't mind, please state your name um, and keep your comments brief and to the point. Um, ask one or at the most two questions per, per person unless there's um, extra time at the end. Um, I think that's all I need to say here. So with that, I would like to again welcome Jennifer McManus back up to the front for the Q&A. Hello. Hi. Am I on? Yeah. Hi, my name is Henning Mundel. And thank you, uh, Jen, for giving us really in, in the face of such a horrible disaster, such a positive presentation and good news story contrary to what just happened south of the uh, border. Um, our moderator mentioned that uh, uh, on the tables we have uh, information about what to expect um, next week. Well, we did have a flyer on the paper what to expect this week, and uh, one aspect we didn't hear anything about other than the dollars about the uh, provincial government's involvement. I wonder if you can talk a bit about their involvement and, and how you people work together. Thank you. And can you guys hear me? Everybody's good? Really great question. Um, we had a chat at my table and somebody asked me, you know, what's the experience been like working alongside of our provincial government? So first and for foremost, I just want to acknowledge that um, the Premier and the Ministerial Emergency Cabinet that has been leading this response at the Government of Alberta's level has really truly been outstanding to work alongside of. Um, leadership on the ground, meeting people, engaging us, allowing us to bring solutions to the table. Uh, my first call was actually into the Chief of Staff uh, with the Premier's office on May 3rd. I called Mayor Blake and I called the Chief of Staff and I said, what do you need us to do? And um, those calls have been very continuous ever since. Really great positive working relationship with the government of Alberta. And also really positive working experience working with leadership uh, both at the RMWB, the Wood Buffalo municipality level, and indigenous leadership in the area. So we are working seamlessly with the provincial government. Uh, we actually are embedded in the provincial recovery task force that is decommissioning at the end of this month. 
and we are also embedded in the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo's recovery task force. So again, really, really great working relationship. We are also embedded in the Provincial Operations Center to uh, assist with all of the coordination and the troubleshooting during the evacuation relief phase. So um, kudos to Albertans and to our uh, provincial government because this was a big disaster and the world was watching. The world was watching the energy sector, the world was watching uh, provincial leadership, and I can tell you that um, we've had lots of phone calls as a national organization from around the world saying, how did you guys do that and what can you share with us? I hope that helps. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thank you very much for coming down. Dan, we, we, you were scheduled a little earlier, but then my something apologies. happened and I think the timing is very good to be here. Uh, my question relates to uh, uh, a disaster of this size, of course, is unprecedented, uh, at least in Canada, I think. Um, so obviously there's probably issues that you had no idea how they were going to play out. Mm -hmm. uh, could you s tell us some of the main things you've learned from this disaster? It's a great question. Thank you. So my apologies. I was scheduled to be here earlier in the fall, but I, um, as you can probably understand, I was called back up north. So I am here today, so it's really great to be with all of you. Uh, challenges and lessons learned. We have a significant list. I won't get into all of them, but what I can tell you is that uh, we push the limit on technology. The electronic funds transfer program of $50 million, we sat in a boardroom with Microsoft and um, brainstormed how we could do this in a very high urgency emergency situation and uh, Microsoft said you guys can do this and we pushed the button and then we all hit the deck <laughs> because we had never done it before but we also knew that the risks the, the risks uh, outweighed the needs outweighed the risks so um, when we did the electronic funds transfer uh, yes there were mistakes and some people received two installments of funding we had set up a portal to return the funds that people got du duplicate. And it's ama it amazes me, the human spirit and the integrity of human beings, that people sent it back to us. And so that was a lesson. We also registered people and geomapped them right across the country. So we actually knew where evacuees were, but sometimes I didn't know where Red Cross personnel were. <laughs> so that was ironic. <laughs> So I could tell you how many evacuees were in Gander, Newfoundland, but I honestly probably couldn't tell you how many people were in Winding River or Fort Saskatchewan from a Red Cross perspective. So again, lessons learned. And, and final comment on lessons learned is that we really need to be prepared at a community level to be able to endure a disaster of this significance. Um, there was a Globe and Mail article that came out about a month ago saying all municipalities need to be prepared for at minimum 100,000 people either coming to your community or leaving your community. So again, being prepared at the household level and at the community level to be able to do this well and safely. So great question, thank you. Douglas Mitchell. Uh, Jennifer, I think it's a fantastic job that the Red Cross have done. However, what I'm concerned about is the future and the possibility of a recurrence of this sort of episode. And uh, you can go and talk, and you've talked a little bit about the relationship with the provincial government, which has to take 
the responsibility largely for ensuring that the rebuild is done properly and that, that we don't see a repeat of highly flammable materials such as vinyl siding, uh, shingle, roof shingles, as well as a lot of wood. And it looks to me as if we, th th those lessons have not been learned, that there are materials that are available. So what I really, and the other thing is the question of fire breaks and proximity to our wonderful natural forest. Mm -hmm. And do you know anything about any plans for making some improvements in light of the possibility of a recurrence of this in the future? It's a great question, multifaceted. So the Canadian Red Cross uh, has a role and a responsibility to advocate for changes to, s to make communities safer. And so we've been working alongside of the Insurance Board of Canada, for example, um, to then move forward and how do we communicate to community members how important it is for people to have the right level of insurance um, and the right insurance for their household. Uh, we've also been working alongside of um, the provincial government talking about how do we strategize moving forward on fire smart initiatives in the province and uh, how do we work with our federal counterparts to ensure that communities are safer. Um, the other discussion coming out of Fort McMurray that is not obviously a Red Cross initiative but uh, a one one highway in and one highway out is not ideal. <laughs> and uh, meeting with Minister Sohi, who is from Central uh, Constituency Central Edmonton, um, I know Minister Sohi has been in the province uh, after Slave Lake and after Fort McMurray. Uh, lots of discussion and evaluation on ring roads and escape routes and how do we do this better in Alberta. So those are some comments that um, I would say to that question. And uh, again, it's knowing the risks. We're asking families and households as the Red Cross to know the risks in their community and in their household. Because the faster you can recover, it, th there's a correlation. The better prepared you are as a household, the faster, faster you can recover after a disaster. Thanks for the question. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Um, thank you, Jennifer, for casting light on many of the many uh, services that the Red Cross provided during this critical time. Um, also, uh, thank you for uh, letting us know how much people uh, chipped in to help, um, uh, both with volunteerism and with money in supporting uh, this uh, Red Cross movement. Around our table, uh, one of the questions that came up was the number of, of uh, organizations that uh, philanthropic organizations uh, that are paying uh, huge salaries to CEOs uh, and making people wonder about donating money uh, to, to major organizations that are doing good work. Uh, has the Red Cross uh, avoided the, the current uh, tendency towards outlandish uh, uh, salaries to CEOs, for example, in order to make the public more willing to support this type of venture. Great, great comment, thank you. So I am part of a leadership team that I'm very proud to be part of across Canada. Um, all of our financial audited statements are released publicly and you can find them on our Red Cross website, redcross.ca. And that includes um, 
the salary of our executive. We also respect the rights and the um, and honor where donors wish to give their money. And that's why it's so important for us to report back on the work we're doing. That's why I'm here this afternoon to tell the story. I think it's really important for us to tell the story so that community members right across the country um, hear about the great work of the Red Cross. We'll make mistakes, and trust me, we have made them. And uh, those are the lessons learned. And uh, absolutely, I can tell you that uh, uh, my provincial, my salary is not exorbitant. <laughs> and uh, I'm really proud to work with an organization that uh, believes in getting funds and resources to communities. Terry Shellington, uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Very interesting. Um, this is not my major question, but if I can sneak in too, who the heck is Countess Wessex? Uh, Countess Wessex is a member of the British royal family, and she came over to Canada and was touring in Western Canada and made a point of <coughs> wanting to visit Fort McMurray because of the tremendous events that she was hearing in North America unfolding, and she made a special stop in Fort McMurray because of her own personal interest, and she wanted to thank community members. Thank you. You're <laughs> okay. welcome. Now on to the uh, meat and potatoes here. Um, so I, I spent a year in Fort McMurray from um, uh, about eight years ago, mm -hmm. and I keep looking at these pictures, looking for something I'll recognize. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, my question is around uh, to what extent was the population of Fort McMurray was between 80 and 90,000, I believe, when the fire started. Uh, how many people are living in Fort McMurray now, and to what extent uh, is, are things back to normal in the city itself? Uh, great question. It's actually... Uh somewhat of a genie in the bottle right now to answer that question. So the service center of Fort McMurray, uh, the last census had it at a population of just under 64,000 people. The regional municipality of Wood Buffalo in its entirety, including indigenous communities, was just under 90,000 after the last census. Um, nobody really knows how many people have truly come back to Fort McMurray. Um, we did a survey on housing needs and um, we had that approximately 55 to 60,000 people had returned to the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo. Um, very anecdotal. Uh, so I would say there's probably a third of Fort McMurrayites have not gone back. Or they've gone back and then been, it's been fluid back and forth, uh, just given the nature of the community and where their support networks are. So it's really, everybody wants that question answered um, for obvious reasons. We want to see vibrancy and people returning back to a community that is so important to the national economy of Canada and to the provincial landscape of Alberta. Um, so we don't know the true number of people that have really returned and um, the Red Cross supports people in their decision to stay or to try it out and give it a go and then possibly move on. So it's a tough question to answer. Oh, hang on a second. I'm going to use my fancy moderator status here to interject to ask Jen to um, relay. A, a, you, you've got a really innovative program that you're that you guys are trying out the Red Cross um, with traditional trapping lines. Can you Thank share that? Thanks, Chelsea. I forgot to mention earlier during my presentation that we're actually designing a recovery program for trappers uh, out on the land. Um, 
significant number of uh, residents in RMWB actually live directly off the land and obviously given the scale and the ferocity of the wildfire, their trap lines were disrupted and destroyed. So we're working alongside of um, Alberta Parks, our federal counterparts, and the Regional Municipality of Wood Buffalo to design a recovery program for traditional trappers to get them back out on their lines, to replace equipment that was lost or damaged, um, and also to help them uh, refurbish their cabins. So really innovative work. And I think it really um, makes a statement that the Red Cross is here to be solutions-oriented based on the context of those impacted by a disaster. Thanks, Chelsea. Hi, I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you so much for your talk. Uh, fascinating to get the information firsthand. <clears throat> I have two questions. The first one is in regard to um, were there other people besides the Red Cross up there working? Um, and if so, were you the coordinating, or were you the umbrella for the groups? And the second question has to do with people suffering post-traumatic stress disorder and other psychiatric disorders, psych um, anxiety, depression, and so on, following um, the devastation. Is there, <coughs> was there counseling when they, when they left and went to the various places um, during the first month, and is there ongoing counseling? Um, who is that paid for? And, and, and I guess that relates to my question of, did you have to hire people um, aside from volunteers? Thank you. Great. Okay, let me uh, I'll unpack that. So yes, there were, other, um, there were other organizations on the ground in Fort McMurray during reentry, absolutely. Uh, the Canadian Red Cross is part of the NGO Council of Alberta. So we were there alongside of um, Salvation Army, Samaritan's Purse, the Billy Graham uh, mental health team was on the ground. I could keep listing numerous organizations. So yes, there was a, a great rallying of organizations on the ground in Fort McMurray doing tremendous work. Mental health, uh, I met the premier day three after the evacuation and she told me very, very forthrightly that mental health was her highest concern. And, uh, and I acknowledged how, how important it was for us to hear that. The Canadian Red Cross has been uh, funding Alberta Health Services mental health workers in Fort McMurray, uh, working alongside of them. So as we meet with individuals as Red Cross caseworkers, we have Alberta Health Services workers were alongside of us. Uh, we've also funded organizations in Fort McMurray who are providing mental health clinical services. Is there a gap? Absolutely. Um, we're also funding a $1 million research project on the impact of disasters on residents and mental health. And we're doing that alongside of uh, Minister Hoffman and Alberta Health Services. And we're also um, funding a project to measure the impact on Indigenous communities, which also has a mental health and safety and well-being component. There's a lot of work to do in this realm and there's much more understanding needs to be distilled as to what are the impacts of such a traumatic event on families and children in particular. Um, an anecdotal story, the Red Cross, uh, the recreational pool in Fort McMurray is a Red Cross swimming pool and the Red Cross uh, lifeguards and swimming instructors were actually asked by the Regional Municipality of Wood Buffalo to work alongside of mental health workers to get children back into the pool. 
um, there were there were many children that were in the pool when the evacuation order came down, and so as part of um, being empowered and claiming back that recreational fun space that kids ought to have in pools, the Red Cross staff and Alberta Health Services worked together to get children back into the pool where they were evacuated from and separated from their families. So there is a lot of work to do, and um, the government of Alberta and the chief medical officer has been very diligent on this as well. Thank you very much, Jennifer. My name is Mary Shillington, and now you're being uh, uh, having to cope with two retired councillors back to back. So I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, a couple of things. Uh, I'm like Bev. I have a couple of questions. She took one of them, but anyway, that's fine. Um, if I didn't answer it well enough, you can. No, it. you did very well. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I want to acknowledge that I'm sure you're like other people who were were volunteering and doing work up there where you really gave a lot of your hours. And so thank you for that. That's oh, important. Thanks, Beth. Um, can you briefly outline the recruitment process for volunteers? Because I think that's, uh, an, that's an ongoing uh, piece uh, as a person who's worked with trying to get volunteers in various organizations. Mm -hmm. It's an ongoing thing. And the, you commented that there are 500, at least 500 families who have not returned. And one of my questions probably would be related to Bev's in that I suspect that somebody in that family has PTSD uh, or, or issues, anxiety, or whatever issues that are related to that. And so what kind of resources are available to those families mm. and their children? Great. Let me start with the 500 families. So we have, fi we have approximately 500 families that are outside of Alberta still and have not returned to Alberta. Uh, where they're residing in the country, the Red Cross is activating a referral network for them. So that would be mental health and safety and well-being supports based on where they are in Canada. Um, and if a family cannot afford um, counseling and clinical services, we will provide financial assistance for that. Um, the other area of mental health that's coming very much to the fore is of our first responders, and um, that is part of the research that's being done. How do, we, how do we support our first responders better after an event of this magnitude? As far as recruitment, uh, I have 712 awesome, super-duper volunteers in the province of Alberta, and uh, I need to recruit over the next five years about 800 more. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so our recruitment process, we've got our office here in Lethbridge, and I've got representatives here from that office, obviously available to ask one-on-one -on -one questions. You can go on to the redcross.ca website and look at volunteering opportunities in your community based on um, your location. And we take onboarding and recruiting volunteers seriously because the work we do, we work with very vulnerable people. And so we're very, very mindful of background checks, police checks, and adequate training. And we want to make sure it's the right fit. Not this, this work isn't for everybody. Uh, it it's, can be challenging, highly rewarding, but deeply challenging. And uh, it has to be the right fit. And so we have an interview process, references, and then we move through the channel of training. So it is, it is a dedication. We've got Doug here who's sitting at the front who is a Red Cross volunteer, and um, I'm sure, I don't want to put you on the spot, Doug, but I'm going to say that you'll probably answer questions if anybody has them. Uh, and really, truly, 
we would not have the reach and scope to be able to do wor the work we do without our volunteers. Thank you. Okay, my name is Mark Gettel. So in addition to your volunteers, a endeavor such as this one, such a huge endeavor, I'm just wondering, did you have to hire more people, uh, paid staff uh, for the Red Cross? And if so, to what extent? How many people did you have to hire to help out? Yeah, that's a great question, sorry, and I missed that part of the earlier question. We are hiring uh, on a term basis uh, individuals to help out in the recovery operation. As you can well imagine, it's, um, it's a big job. Our team in Fort McMurray, when everybody is on the ground, it will probably be close to 70 people providing support in RMWB. We had the same number in the Southern Alberta floods. Uh, the team doing recovery work after the Southern Alberta floods was 74. Uh, and my provincial team is 70. So uh, actually the recovery operation in Fort McMurray will be larger than my provincial operation. And the two are very separate. Uh, I just want to note that um, the provincial operation is a separate operation from the recovery operation in Fort McMurray. And we still have 150 families that we are supporting in some way, shape, or form after the Southern Alberta floods. And that was three years in June. So just to give an indication of recovery being long, complex, and private. I hope that answered the question. My name is Henry Heinen, and you mentioned other organizations involved with you, like Samaritan's Purse. Mm -hmm. Could you comment at all in terms of the churches, synagogue, mosque, whether those folks were on the ground ready to help or donate or whatever in terms of the, the role they played? Mm -hmm. The faith-based community groups were really outstanding right across the province during the evacuation. One of the first... Um, community members that I met upon re-entry to Fort McMurray was the imam from the mosque in Fort McMurray. Fort McMurray has the largest and most diverse Muslim population in Western Canada, and it also has the highest diversity based on population ratio outside of the greater Toronto area. And so when I met with the imam, uh, we were working with his team immediately in providing uh, supports to um, his community members, and it was Ramadan. So not only was the evacuation a month long, but it actually felt right at the same time as Ramadan. And the other faith-based groups, we had Tibetan and Buddhist community members, Sikh and uh, Hindu community members, all of the denominations of the Christian faith, really quite a remarkable matrix of faith-based groups working and willing to help, but also knowing that they didn't want to get in the way as well. I mean, this was an emergency. And, um, and mindful that uh, sometimes when you get too many people on the ground, you're buttressing and bouncing off of each other. We did not coordinate faith-based groups. Uh, we were in the Provincial Operations Center coordinating um, ministries and other resources, but we were not coordinating faith-based groups. We were working alongside of them. Is the uh, moderator allowing second questions? Uh, Chelsea seems pretty nice. I, I'm going to say yes for you, Knud. Okay, thank you. Jan, I was just um, curious to what uh, your week following the fire was like. I don't really remember it. <laughs> I knew I was in hotel rooms in various communities across northern Alberta. Um, I, I missed Mother's Day, and that was a hard day to miss. I have two little boys. 
uh, I was on the ground in northern Alberta for about 17 days straight before I took a break. Uh, that just indicated the sense of urgency and how big this was. For the most part, I had no idea where I was. I didn't know if I was in Lac La Biche or Edmonton or Anzac or Fort Saskatchewan, um, but I did know I was in Alberta, and I did know I was surrounded by awesome people. So basically, the month of May is a blur. <laughs> June is a little bit more in focus, and, uh, and July was head down and working. But again, tremendous. I mean, Albertans across the board, this province is outstanding. And we are truly the awe of Canada. When I talk to my peers across Canada within the Red Cross, they'll say to me, I don't know how you guys do it in Alberta. This is the third largest disaster, and you guys move the needle each time. And the can-do attitude in this province is really outstanding. <laughs> I'll clap back at you guys, because it's about you too. <laughs> Hi, Jen. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Frances Schultz, and I was just wondering if you have any information that that tells us what percentage of the rebuilding has actually occurred, and how much, what, how many areas are still not rebuilt, and does that contribute to the number of people that can come back? Yeah. So thanks. That's a great question. Unfortunately, I'm not able to speak to that. Um, I know that the recovery task force at the municipal level has been working very diligently on the rebuilding, the debris cleanup, the permitting, and all of the logistics around reconstruction. Um, we are looking at innovative ways to help with those, that process. Uh, either it's possibly funding families for their permits, or we did fund families that were uninsured or underinsured for their debris cleanup because that was a personal responsibility of families. Um, but the rebuild, I can't comment on it right now, but I know that there's a lot of distress around it and we're moving into winter. And so that's challenging. Yeah. One of the reasons why the Premier did hold the state of provincial emergency for so long was to control the consumer price gouging. Uh, on, on construction materials to be able to level the playing field. So lots of, lots of work happening behind the scenes, but I can't comment on the number of rebuilds. Over 2,400 structures were destroyed, um, and that's significant. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're on to our last question, sir. It's yours, and then I just want to say, um, when, we're, when we finish that, I'm hoping, Jen, that you can just take a quick moment to let us know what should be kind of the, the thought in our minds as to how we're thinking about our own community um, as, as we leave. Thank you for your presentation, Jean. <clears throat> I'm ever honest. The question comes to mind that I say, well, how much have the unions contributed to rebuilding and helping the people and the companies, foreign companies, how, how much have they contributed to the help that was needed there outside the insurance? Yeah, it's a great question. The largest donation that the Canadian Red Cross received from this appeal came from the trade unions of Alberta. Collectively, they gave $1 million to this appeal fund, and that was amazing. <laughs> so thank you for asking the question. On the ground in RMWB, those unions are working tirelessly to coordinate and organize themselves. Again, I can't 
talk specifically on the rebuild, but um, I know that I've seen lots of trade union leaders and uh, members ready to work and ready to, to give it their all to rebuild Fort McMurray, and the $1 million donation was truly outstanding. Okay, can so my parting thoughts? Yeah, parting thoughts, <laughs> if you don't mind. So uh, first and foremost, I would like all of you to go home and check your insurance policies <laughs> and know what's in them and make sure they're up to date. I have sat with so many families that never took the time to look at their insurance policies, either as a tenant or a homeowner, and coverage of your assets, even if you've paid your mortgage off. Um, so please, please go home and look at your policies and make sure that you're adequately covered. Also, I'm going to ask all of you to go home and, and map out who's your support network if something were to happen in Lethbridge. Who, who can you call and do you have all of your materials and all of your valuable documentation in one place? The other thing that I'm hearing from families is that they didn't have their banking and their legal papers and their birth certificates in a place where they could actually identify where they were and take them with them when they had to go. And so a lot of families are very distressed in reconstructing their identities and finding all of their legal paperwork. And then thirdly, I would just say, please um, listen to your emergency management leaders in your community. When an event such as this unfolds, the reason why it was done so safely and well, and yes, there were two tragic deaths, um, but we listened to the emergency management leadership. And please listen to those emergency announcements that come through either the provincial government or your local municipality. It does save lives, and it's really important to follow uh, those first responders. And if you would like to volunteer with the Red Cross, please look us up. We would love to have you join us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen, and